2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Emily Weinstein and Carrie James about the new book, Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing, How Teens Navigate a Networked World and How Adults Can Support Them. Emily, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. So, how was your week? And did you have any notable events happen? Something interesting? And we're going to start with Emily. Oh, thanks for asking. Um, it's been a good week. Carrie and I are just a couple weeks out
0: from the release of our new book, Behind Their Screens: What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. So, we have been doing a lot of prep to help support the book launch.
2: And Carrie, how are you?
0: I'm very well. Thank
2: you. Um, as
0: Emily said, it's been a
2: really
1: busy time, um, you know, and thinking about the book. Um, more on a personal note, I have a, um, I have a 16-year-old daughter who has her learner's permit now. And, um, and so that's giving me a mix of excitement for
2: her, but also um, a little dose of terror, I have to say. <laughs> Okay, so Emily, could you tell us what you do? Sure. Um,
0: So I am a researcher at Project Zero, which is a research center at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. My background is in human development psychology, and I I focus on studying the ways social media shape our everyday lives and experiences. And with a particular focus on adolescence and what it's like for adolescents to be growing up in a world with social media and smartphones and unprecedented connectivity to each other all the time. Um, I am totally fascinated by these questions and they've just propelled a research agenda and work in the space for a little bit over a decade now. And I feel so lucky that I get to do much of this work with Carrie, who is on the call also.
2: And Carrie?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I share that like sense of uh, of of good fortune that I get to work with Emily. So um, I am I'm a sociologist by training, um, and for over for almost twenty years, actually, I've been a principal investigator, a researcher at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education at a research center called Project Zero, and it's a wonderful interdisciplinary. Place to explore exciting questions about thinking and learning and what it's like to grow up in today's world. And um, I'm a qualitative researcher by training. So I love collecting stories and making sense of people's perspectives and how that connects with how they grew up and their identities and their opportunities and constraints. And so um, I feel really lucky to be able to do really interesting work, but also work that is impactful, we, we do a lot of uh, work at Project Zero that's very educator basic. Um, so we do research, we create some really interesting ideas, we study things, and then we have this really applied place to share what we're doing um, with teachers and, and other, other stakeholders, um, especially in young people's lives. And that's what Emily and I are really
0: concerned with with this book.
2: And how did you get interested in this field, Emily?
0: Oh, I, I've had a lifelong fascination with human behavior and with the ways that we experience ourselves and how we connect with others. And it just feels impossible not to be totally fascinated by the ways technology is changing and reshaping the ways that we are doing both of those things, really, experiencing ourselves and connecting with others. And frankly, experiencing our entire world. And um, so it's sort of evolved organically. I am someone who (laughs) I always love to know people's routines. Like I love to know um, what people's morning routines are and what they like tea for breakfast and how they, how they manage their calendars. I'm just, I love understanding how people approach really the mundane details of everyday life. And so I think there's just been a really natural interest in, um, in the ways that technology is intersecting.
2: And Carrie, what fascinates you about working in academia? Is there any particular reason that you like continuing in academia?
1: Well, I think um I think it's like it's connected to what I said a few moments ago about the uniqueness of where Emily and I get to do our work. So we're in academia, we're we're at a research center in a university and a research center that's really dedicated to both conducting rigorous research and understanding important dynamics, but also developing powerful tools that are impactful, practical supports and interventions that can really affect people. Lives. So I love sitting at the intersection of research and practice and knowing that any time Emily and I work together to answer a research question, we're not just going to contribute a journal article or write a book, but we're also going to do something really practical with it that will really give tools to teachers and parents and other, other folks to really make a difference in the world.
2: And do you have any sort of advice or tips to our student listeners and early career researchers from your experience in doing this kind of research? Mm.
0: Some advice that I got early on that has been really helpful is to ask research questions that you really want to answer that you don't already know the answers to um, so that you have a sort of natural energy and interest in getting and staying really close to good quality data. Um, I think that there are a lot of parts of the research process that can um, feel a little more boring or challenging or tricky. You're up against you're up against different issues in your work. And if you're chasing the answers to questions that you actually feel like you really want to know the answers to, it is so motivating to just stick with it. And I've always found that when I start a project with a question that I'm interested in, I also end it with another question that feels really obvious to ask. And I think Carrie and I have just both found that that just has propelled <laughs> propelled a whole suite of research studies because um, because then you're just naturally curious and you can't wait to figure out what you're going to learn. I'll just build on that. I'll I'll
1: echo what Emily uh, shared about like really asking genuine questions, questions you really don't know the answers to, and you really are driven to try to understand them. And the part that I'll add on is um, that's been really meaningful for me is um, don't chase those answers alone. I've found tremendous, like, power and real joy in being able to do the work alongside Emily and other work that I do alongside colleagues. One of the things about academia um, that, you know, I kind of learned early on is like you can create a pretty solo existence, exploring your research questions, doing a little bit of teaching, which is a little bit more social, but um, it's so much more rewarding from my perspective to work in collaboration with other folks and people who bring different skills sets and tools to the table different disciplinary
2: lenses that's been
1: incredibly powerful
2: i totally agree i love it all right so your latest book is behind their screens what teens are facing and adults are missing and how did you come to writing it
0: so Behind Their Screens draws on research that we did with thousands of real teens across the United States, including during the pandemic, to draw back the curtain on what they really wish adults understood about their online, their online lives. Um, we break down for readers what's myth, what's reality, and ultimately how to have better conversations with the kids and teens in your life.
1: And in terms of how your question about how we came to write this book and, um, you know, for over a decade, Emily and I have um, been working together, been uh, really exploring some of the some really rich questions like what it's like for adolescents to grow up in a world of 24 seven, always on connectivity. we've had a particular interest lately in what's really hard for adolescents about growing up with social media specifically, and why? Like, what are their real pain points? And um, and sort of getting back to a theme I mentioned earlier around the being at the intersection of research and practice, like what, what does this mean for how we as adults, what we do, how can we better support um, adolescents around what's hard and really helps them um, thrive in this world. And so um, over the years and doing, um, doing research on digital life more generally, we've explored different facets and themes. Emily wrote her dissertation on Um, on social media and mental health and well-being. We worked together on a big study that looked at young people's civic development and the way that social media plays a role in that. Um, But for this most, for the book that we've, um, we've, we're about to, to, the book that's about to come out, um, it draws on some recent research we started to do around 2017, 2018, where we started a new project really um, motivated by the sense that the digital supports out there for young people both in classrooms and at homes and at home were often really missing the mark that they really weren't um, helping teens navigate a world with a lot of tensions and dilemmas where like straightforward rules of thumb, like only two hours of screen time a day, or don't post something that will come back to bite you. Th- those sort of top level um, rules of thumb really aren't that helpful for a lot of the dilemmas that young people face. So we started to really dig into the complexity of young people's digital lives. And uh, we ended up conducting a survey, um, I believe Emily mentioned this, where we collected perspectives from over 3,500 adolescents across the U.S. And one of the most revealing questions we asked in that survey um, was what worries you most about growing up with today's technologies? And what we learned in response to that question Really surprised us. And again, we've been doing research in this area for over a decade, but the insights that came from that question were so powerful. We were like, we have enough to fill a book. And so that's where this book project started.
2: All right. So let's dive into the nitty gritty of the book. And can we start with something just to get everybody on the same page so we know where we're coming from? So how are we used to thinking about teens and their relationships, uh, relationship with tech and smartphones and uh, social media? Well, I think one thing is
0: that there are a lot of sort of common stereotypes of teens on their phone, um, on their phones that, miss the mark or are kind of out of step with some of the hidden pressures and dilemmas and behaviors that are actually relevant to teens so just for example um a lot of adults have assumptions like or say things like teens are addicted to their phones or teens don't care about the people around them they're just so focused on their screens or teens don't realize or don't care that the the things they post online can linger can come back in the future Um, and we know from our research on each of these topics um that these assumptions just don't capture the reality. So let's just take that last one, this idea that teens don't realize or don't care that their digital footprints could last forever. Adults and um, specifically parents and educators often worry a lot about this. And we talk a lot to teens about this idea that um, anything you post can stay online forever, can come back to haunt you in the future. But Teens actually know this too. And in fact, they say things that sound awfully similar to adults' concerns. Again and again, we heard things like a 13-year-old saying, if you're young and make a post that the older you would regret, it's too late. Someone or something has already saved it and stored it, and you have no way of deleting it. Or another teen, if you post one thing on social media, you can't get it back. And these were not anomalies. We heard these kinds of things again and again. And what we started to appreciate as we really dug into interpreting these kinds of responses, which came initially from our survey Alongside teens. That's that's something we didn't mention early. We earlier, we actually um, in this project had an amazing setup where we were able to co-interpret all the data alongside teens every step of the way. We had an advisory council of teens that helped us really make sense of what we were seeing and hearing. And um, we started to appreciate that awareness about digital footprints, for example, doesn't always translate into perfect choices or good decisions or a clean digital footprint. Uh, um, And there are a bunch of reasons why. One is that there are social pulls and pressures that are really strong. Things like the desire to be seen as funny by peers or to impress your peers. And those feel far more immediate and weighty Than the distant risk of maybe not getting into a college or maybe getting fired from a future job. And this is actually partly rooted in what we know about how adolescents' brains are developing. So we can keep wishing that they'd care less about their peers or that they'd be better at prioritizing long-term potentials against um, immediate rewards, but we're kind of up against their biology here in a lot of cases. And then another reality is that their digital footprints are actually co-authored or co-constructed. So their peers are constantly recording and posting things. And sometimes they really like this. This is a good thing because it helps them present the kind of image they want. But a lot of times they don't like it. And it's really complicated to ask someone to take something down. Or you realize that even if you ask them to take it down, um, as that teen said earlier, once it's already out there, it's out there. So there are ways in which um, adults can kind of fail to appreciate that teens are not fully in their own control of their digital footprints. They have other people co-authoring their online identities, contributing to their digital footprints in in ways that they may or may not want.
1: Another thing that really adds to the complexity of what um, Emily's been sharing is that there really is this norm around, uh, around recording everything and screenshotting and, you know, sharing things. And so, and that becomes really challenging um, for teens. It really, um, even if your communication is in a group chat that feels somewhat private, there's always the possibility that it can be screenshotted and shared with a larger, larger audience. You know, teens go out of their way to create uh, private stories on Snapchat and Instagram, where they can just vent with a close Circle of friends, but if something happens with a friend in that group and things go south, um, there's a lot of power in that other friend to screenshot something and share it out with a wide audience. Teens talk about collecting receipts. Um, So this means screenshots of like private text conversations or posts that have been deleted. um, And they hold on to them to bring them back in case, you know, you know, something happens and they want someone to be accountable for it. So it's a really tricky landscape. We hear a lot also about cancel culture, which really adds to the anxiety about things like digital receipts and the world teens are facing. They know that they're going to make mistakes. It's part of growing up, yet it feels like they're growing up in a make no mistakes world. And they see people being held accountable for real moral transgressions, but they also see their peers canceling classmates for things that are really trivial. Um, And so, you know, it's a really, really thorny uh, landscape that teens are facing.
2: So you had a very impressive uh, sample of uh, the population that you had. Could you just fill us in on uh, some of the methods that you used?
1: Absolutely. Um, So we used um, both traditional and non-traditional methods in uh, carrying out this research. So as we mentioned earlier, we conducted a survey, which is a pretty traditional method in social science research, um, and we're able to gather data from over 3,500 teens. Um, We asked a variety of open-ended as well as closed-ended questions on the survey. We presented youth with different scenarios, digital dilemmas that we knew were realistic to some of the issues that were coming up in their digital lives and really wanted to try to understand their responses to um, those issues in terms of who these uh, 3,500 youth were, um, we actually co- collaborated with 15 different middle and high schools um, from across 10 U.S. states and different regions of the country. And these schools included traditional public schools, public charter schools. I, th- I believe there was one private school in the mix. Um, and the students who attend these schools are research respondents, those who responded to the survey, um, really represented presented a diverse cross-section of adolescents in the US. Most were between the ages of 12 and 18. They were really diverse with respect to gender, nearly half identified as non-white. So that's a little bit about the traditional methods. Emily, do you want to say something about our more sort of innovative, non-traditional methods?
0: Sure. I mentioned this briefly, but um, one of the things that we realized, and that we that we realized just by doing this process firsthand, that I think has fundamentally changed the way we've done research since, and will do research moving forward, is that we work to involve teens in our research really at every step of the way. So not just to have them respond to survey questions or to be people who we interviewed, um, which we've done historically, but to really work side by side with us in thinking about um, questions to ask, but especially how to interpret the data and the stories we were hearing. So we had a teen advisory council of 22 teens from across different identity, across different contexts, identities, backgrounds, um, and they really helped us dig into the data. And the result is that they helped us get a kind of teen level view of these different issues and a totally different kind of look into what's hard and why. And it meant that we learned things that we probably wouldn't have even known to ask about if we hadn't been working
2: alongside them. All right. So you already presented some of very exciting findings. And especially what's really exciting to me is that teens are so insightful about these issues that, that you mentioned. Were you surprised? Um, I, I don't think either of us was surprised uh, to find that teens
0: had a lot to share because we we just think teens are amazing and um, we have done research really closely with teens the entire time we've been we've been doing research so um, we knew that they would have a lot to bring to the table but for sure we were surprised by the nature of the insights they were sharing. Um, And we can just give you maybe a few examples, but it was really fascinating the ways that their insights helped us reshape our own understandings of different issues that we had been studying and seeing in the literature. So um, for example, there's a lot of adults sort of wringing their hands over the idea that technologies are eroding empathy. But as we started doing this work really focused on teens' voices and perspectives, we started to see how um, it's actually a sense of empathy that's at the root of a lot of the key dilemmas they feel that relate to technology. So one big thing adults miss is how being a good friend can be really hard and complicated in a digital world. And it was pretty fascinating to find what felt like really a hidden burden of the current trends in adolescent mental health. Um, so there, you know, there's there's an adolescent mental health crisis that's on many of our radars. We're very we're deeply concerned about adolescents who are struggling. Um, but the reality is that uh, sort of hidden burden of of this of these trends is how hard it is to be there for friends who are struggling. So. Even if a teen is not personally struggling, they almost surely have someone in their network, if not their friend group, who is. And seeing that person's posts raises a lot of puzzles about whether and when and how to respond. And then we have this always on part, this side of technology, this reality that a friend can reach out to you 24 um, seven for support. And that can be really positive if you're a friend who needs support, but it can also be really overwhelming for a teen who's trying to be a good supporter, who cares deeply about being a good friend, but also may want to disconnect to protect their own, um, you know, protect their own well-being. So just imagine that you're a teen who's, um, Who is trying to be a good friend and, and your desire to be a good friend gets pitted against being able to put your phone down to do your homework or to be with your family for dinner or to get sleep at night.
2: So where does that misalignment between understanding of adults and teens come from? Well, I think part of it
0: is that, um, we didn't grow up with these technologies, for sure. Things are changing fast and furious. You know, the, the technologies are, are changing, and so do the ways we use them. Um, adults have a lot of assumptions about tech. You know, we've said that a few times. Many of them are negative. We often see headlines that confirm our worst instincts. Um, Carrie and I have just had such an interesting um, an, an interesting experience, because again and again, when we tell people, um, just even in social settings, we tell people we're researchers and we study teens and te- technology or we study teens and social media. Um, and immediately people would will say, oh, I know it's, it's so bad. It's so bad. Isn't it? Um, And there is, it it just, that just captures that we all have this. I I think not, I don't want to say we all, but many adults. And certainly I've had that conversation now hundreds of times. So I know it's the case that many people just have this very instinctive reaction. It's just so bad. And that often actually sets us up to shut down rather than open the kinds of conversations with teens that would actually get us closer to better understanding and alignment. Because we let these assumptions color the kinds of questions we ask and the kinds of things we ch- we notice um, when, we're, when we're engaging with kids around technology. Um, we don't often I think stop to ask questions like, uh, what do you, who are you following who really inspires you? Or what do you What do you do that makes you feel really connected and supported on social media? Um, we focus on the negatives. And I think because of that, we put teens in a position where on the one hand, they kind of want to hide the negatives from us because they're worried about just confirming our worst assumptions um, or having us <laughs> double down on regulations and rules. And on the other hand, um, they, they think we aren't interested or don't care or wouldn't understand the things that feel good and are positive for them. So a huge part of our work has been trying to figure out how uh, a better understanding of the good and the hard stuff that teens are facing and navigating on their screens, um, coupled with just more empathy, frankly, from adults and just more curiosity to really understand this space actually helps us bridge the gap and, and sort of correct some of that misalignment that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, just weighing in here, I mean, I think um, to add to what Emily was saying that, you know, adults, I think that the, you know, the reasons why um, are, there's misalignment, as you put it, Galena, between what adults um, are assuming and what teens are experiencing is, I think our protective and really well-intentioned instincts kick in, like as parents, as teachers, we really want um, our kids to grow up safe and to be successful and to thrive in this world. And so, especially in a context where everything seems really new and fast-changing, teens, you know, young people are using apps that we don't fully understand. And so it can feel really foreign. And so that sort of knee-jerk, like, we need to protect young people and keep them safe, I think leads us to message in ways that can be pretty panicky and alarmist. And so it comes from a really good place, um, but it doesn't create a lot of understanding. And so we've been really advocates of slowing down, like Emily said, um, getting really curious, um, asking a lot of questions, and also sort of trying to to tune into What's familiar um, in in a world that seems really new? Because at base, a lot of the tensions and things that are hard for young people, they're amplified by social media and new technologies. But they're age old um, woes that adolescents face. You know, trying to figure out who you are and express yourself to the world wanting to be liked and to like others, develop strong relationships with peers and feel like you're appreciated and validated for who you are. Those are old drivers we can all relate to whether we've grown up with digital technologies or not. So really that remembering that we actually know what it feels like to be excluded, uh, to feel like we're not getting enough validation from peers to want to uh, share something that's exciting about us. And social media just provide new venues for that, complicated ones, but you know, the, the feelings underneath all of that are still pretty enduring and age-old.
2: So perhaps you came across this question from adults that usually comes up like, oh, what are teens doing on their phones all the time? So can you give us some insights into what online world does actually mean to teens and beyond social media, even something that you can do on your own, for example, music and stuff like that? Yes.
0: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) What are teens doing on their devices is such a big question and the answer is so much, but (laughs) but actually maybe the most important answer is that it really varies. And um, one thing that we just saw again and again is that um, what teens are spending their time with on their devices is not just some, there's not some uniform answer. So certainly we can talk about what are the most popular apps right now or trends around to YouTube or whatever, whatever app we're interested in. But the reality is that um, what teens are doing, what kinds of content they're interacting with, what they're creating, what they're listening to, um, that varies. And the best way to learn what they're doing is really to ask. Um, Carrie and I have both now mentioned the, this kind of value of curiosity, but um, we we have just found that as the more that we kind of table our own assumptions and lean into questions about what, what you're doing on your phone, how it makes you feel, which is actually a critical critical piece. Two teens can look at the exact same content and have very different um, interpretations and reactions to it. So getting curious really helps us to um, understand some of that. Maybe we'll just share one example. I think one thing that's been really interesting to us over the last decade is around um, what teens are doing on their devices related to activism. Carrie, do you want to share a little bit about some of the trends we've seen and the shifts we've, we've noted?
1: Yes, definitely. So um, so this has been a topic of great interest to us for a very long time. So about uh, over a decade ago, we I, I mentioned earlier, we started to uh, do some research around adolescents and, and young adults at that, that time and who were civically active and really trying to pinpoint how uh, social media and other digital technologies became um, a set of tools in their activism and what the great opportunities were that were and what some of the pressures were. And so um, what's really interesting is that at that time back then, um, the young civic actors who we spoke with, you know, saw a lot of real positives. There are ways in which you could use Twitter and Facebook and other media to amplify a message, uh, to really mobilize support, send out e-petitions, really get people to a rally. So there was a lot of positive. But of course course naturally there were a lot of challenges as well like you know sort of having a politicized digital footprint follow you into your future or really having an online discussion about a political issue devolve into a shouting match and so those were some really lively challenges at that time and those challenges continue the difference is and this is what you know this was really powerful in our latest research um, a decade ago Um, using social media as part of activism felt optional or extra credit for the young people we spoke to. That has really changed today. When we talked with teens today, it really feels essential and even expected. And what's harder is that there are so many ways to get it wrong. So for example, teens tell us that their peers monitor who speaks up and who doesn't about every issue, calling out anything that they view as problematic, hypocritical, performative, or just insincere. As one team told us, you know, it, can, it goes both ways. You feel scared to post something, but you also feel obligated to post something. Um, So it's a real high stakes kind of context now around social media and posting and it's a and the stakes really have to do with things adolescents care very much about which are friendships 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 are very much on the line so teens describe even breaking friendships over the presence or absence of social media posts about urgent civic issues. Um, For example, Black Lives Matter is one where this came up, you know, in a really uh, dynamic um, and pressured way. The timing of what you post and when really matters. So one teen told us a story about a a scandal that broke out in her high school, um, and it was sparked by a beach selfie, a picture that a student uh, posted on the beach in her bikini. And on any other day, it would have generated a heavy dose of likes and over the top compliments. Um, But it was posted the day after George Floyd was murdered. And the blowback was severe, public, the comment sections blew up with all kinds of arguments about whether, you know, the extent to which this was insensitive, completely out of touch. Um, and so teens are really feeling like where, when, and how they engage civically is under the microscope. Um, now, the positives I mentioned earlier that teens told us about a decade of ago still exists and I think that's what makes it really hard like there there are great potentials there to be a civic actor and use social media but posting about civic issues is far from easy activism for young people
2: does this sort of go across different populations and communities does it sort of bridge some of those underrepresented communities with each other as well
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, around Black Lives Matter, um, we 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 heard from teens of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds about the particular kinds of that felt obligation to post um, was experienced. Like the idea that there is this sense that you need to be um, digitally posting about your views about Black Lives Matter was palpable. The way it Played out, of course, varied by teens' racial identities. So um, we had um, teens who identified as black telling us about friends criticizing them for not posting enough and saying like, "If you're if you're not posting." frequently enough, you're not really black or you're not really, you know, sort of standing up for um for yourself. Um we had we had a teen on our advisory council who was the head of her black student union at her school who was really committed to organizing in-person protests and rallies and really busy with doing all that work and felt this extra layer of pressure to post on social media too, which she felt was really fraught and, you know, didn't feel comfortable doing, but felt like she had to because her peers really expected it. So those are just some examples.
0: We we also for sure heard from white teens who lived in, um, on the one hand, in communities where th- their views were out of step with the majority, um, the sort of majority political um, and activist views in their community. And on the other hand, teens who were in communities where their views were very much in line and they were still feeling pressured to post, even though, as one teen put it, it's like, he felt like it was... P- posting, posting was like feeding a fed horse. Like no one really needed to do it. And it was very performative, but there was still a lot of monitoring of who was posting and who wasn't. And you sort of contrast that teen who, for whom, um, posting something about black lives matter, um, was, was feeling very performative. And like, it was not going to, there was not going to be a single follower he had who disagreed with anything he said, um, versus teens who were in context where they felt like, Anything they posted was actually at risk of being out of step and costing them um, friendships. I'm thinking of one that was not specifically about Black Lives Matter, but about supporting um, about supporting Biden and um, the reaction that one teen got from friends and peers on her sports team who were Trump supporters and who felt like it was really they they just couldn't see past it. And not to say that that dynamic is specific to a Biden supporter in a, a predominantly Trump community. I mean, we heard that flipped. That flipped dynamic for sure as well, and so just um, recognizing how these how these challenges are playing out for teens and how they're feeling pressures sort of uh, not regardless of because very much shaped by their identities and the context they're in, but um, across the board, teens really feeling universally feeling pressures around civic and political expression on social media. Um, Though the details and the natures of those pressures and their consequences certainly playing out in different ways for different teens.
2: That sounds like a very complex landscape to navigate and do these uh, generations sort of teen uh, who are teens now and a little bit earlier as well they don't have a rule book don't they because this media is so new
0: no gosh
2: <laughs> I think uh, I think many people
0: crave a rule book but it, instead they're left trying to um trying to guess trying to interpret um and it's true for sure in the civic um in the civic realm but you know there's also so much information that's ambiguous that they're trying to interpret and, um, and norms that are sort of unwritten. Your, your comment about the, about the rule book makes me think about teens talking about, um, how much their response time to each other matters when they're messaging and what it feels like to be left on read, meaning, um, someone has read your message and chosen not to respond. And then you start wondering why aren't they responding? Did I say the wrong thing? Do they not really like me? Um, And then even maybe a level kind of up from that when someone leaves a message or a Snapchat that you sent on delivered, meaning they don't even open it, um, can really feel intense and, uh, put you on edge and, and kind of a prod at your insecurities. And, um, you know, so we heard about those dynamics and we heard about teens trying to game their response time. Like if, especially if you're sort of flirting with someone, um, and they send you a mess, you notice that you send a message and they wait five minutes to respond. Um, you might even set a timer for six minutes on your phone so that you can get your response time just right and try and calibrate, um, and try and calibrate the cues that you're sending that are you know have nothing to do with the actual text that you're sending but with the with the response time itself so there are just so many dynamics that teams are thinking about and considering as they try and navigate this landscape
2: oh gosh i should have preceded that question with a trigger warning <laughs> i was like ending your sentence with a dot oh my gosh i know that that dot
0: dot, dot on the screen for sure <laughs>
2: So, what are some of the impacts on the offline, but also on the online life of teens? Are adults worried about some of the negative aspects of them?
1: Oh, so many. I mean, you know, adults. You know, we we really tuned into what adults are worried about too, um, in our work as you know broader context for drilling down into teens' worries. Um, adults definitely worry about digital footprints, as we discussed it earlier, they worry about young people's digital habits, like teens are so addicted to their phones, they can't seem to let them go. And one of the things that uh, we we give voice to in the book is the way in which that kind of narrative um, really glosses over a lot of the tensions and pressures uh, young people feel, as Emily described earlier. One of the reasons why some teens keep their phones right next to them and are always looking is maybe they're caring about Um, they're worried about a friend who's struggling and they feel like they need to be available to them, a variety of things. Another big topic that, um, that adults are, are really worried about is, um, is sexting. Um, So this, this is, you know, this is definitely um, a big part of the teen landscape and something that, um, that adults feel like they kind of Uh, don't have their footing always in talking with teens about. And believe me, um, as moms of daughters, Emily and I are both moms of daughters, we really feel that ourselves. Um, And we know that, you know, sending nudes, sexting, can raise a lot of moral considerations, legal considerations, it feels, and it is really high stakes, but we learned some really interesting things as we talk to teens and we listen to teens talk about sexting. um, One of the things that we learned is that there is a lot of pressure, tremendous pressure around sexting, Um, pressure to ask for nudes and even pressure pressure to ask for nudes even, and pressures to send them, even when they don't really want to. So we heard from boys who don't really want to ask, um, for nudes, but feel pressure from their friends that, you know, if they're in a relationship with someone, they should be like collecting these things maybe as trophies. Um, and then we heard from girls who feel like they have no good choices when the requests are coming from people they really care about, people who they like and want to feel close to. Um, and, you know, you you mentioned before, you know, something about, about how hard it is to grow up in this landscape. And so we've been alert to to those pressures that teens feel, but also some of the strategies that they um, they invent as they go. Strategies for when, as I mentioned a moment ago, they you know they really don't have a lot of good choices. So we were really struck when girls told us about a practice called watermarking nudes. This is where a girl adds a tiny nearly hidden watermark to their nude picture that has the name of the guy that they're sending it to. Mm -hmm. So this means that if the picture ever gets leaked, if the guy forwards it to a whole group of his friends, not noticing the tiny hidden watermark, um, he's automatically implicated and there's some level of accountability.
2: Oh, I love that. So what are some other ways that we can sort of address these issues and try and protect teens online? Um, well, do you mean specifically related to sexting or more generally? To sexting and, and generally as well. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you, that you touched upon this because people don't tend to talk about it. Even you know something like pornography as well, because we, we should know that teens do do re- gonna see it, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the first
0: thing is exactly what you just said. It is actually talk about it. I think mm-hmm. um, many adults have this concern that if we start talking about the tough stuff, that we're going to plant ideas in kids' heads, whether that's um, talking about sexting or talking about suicide, that we're worried we're going to give them ideas. But um, the reality is that, that the research just doesn't bear that out. And in fact, the op- opposite, that having these conversations is a really powerful and important intervention. Um, A couple of things specific to sexting. So um, girls told us really clearly that, um, they, they wish that we would ask parents of boys, especially to tell their sons not to ask for nudes, um, just that there is so much attention on, on the, not sending the nudes, but, um, and I'm saying the word nude n u d e s, not news. <laughs> um, so, so really telling, telling teens do not ask for nudes, not just don't send them. Don't ask. It puts, it puts the person you're asking in a really hard position, um, helping also helping teens come up with language for saying no. Um, we, we heard, especially from, um, middle schoolers and middle school girls in particular about, uh, worries around pressure, feeling pressure around sending nudes and really wanting strategies and ways to, um, to navigate requests and turn them down. And so I think just proactively, uh, creating, creating opportunities to think together with them about what would you do if you got a request and um, who are the people in your life? Maybe it's, it's not me, your parent, maybe there are other adults, but is there, is there an aunt, a mentor, a coach, someone who you really trust who you could go to if you felt like you were really being pressured and didn't know what to do? Um, for sure, also teaching teens just universally do not ever forward someone's nude to another person. Um, this is really something that teens see as a clear violation of consent. Um, and yet adults, the ways that we respond don't always, uh, and the way we talk about sexting doesn't always, um, really underscore that message. So if you, um, if you ever receive a, a picture of someone else's, do not forward it on, um, And then I think that the last thing is uh, sometimes things go wrong and uh, a nude picture is leaked. And when that happens, what teens told us is that often the adults focus all the blame and negative attention on the person who um, is in the picture, the person who took a, a nude picture of themselves in the first place. And, um, this is really like this sh- kind of shame and blame of the victim really is so common, but also really problematic. And teens talk about how, you know, there are natural consequences that already feel really bad if you're that person. Um, and it sort of shifts the focus away from the fact that the people who forwarded, who, who leaked that picture and who forwarded it on, forwarded it on are really culpable in this situation. Um, and then I guess there's one more thing, which is that our research team also started to see another way that this kind of typical adult reaction of focusing, um, focusing just on the idea that the sender should have never taken the picture. Um, this can kind of backfire because it sends a sort of subtle message that it's their own fault that it got leaked. And mm-hmm. this can make teens feel more justified in circulating or forwarding other people's nudes when they receive them, because after all, it's your bad for taking the picture in the first place. So um really level, have these conversations, but also recognizing that disrupting this culture means that we have to be very clear that it is never, ever okay to forward another person's picture or share it um, if you receive it for any reason.
2: So what can we see in the future, sort of in, in this area? What can you perceive coming coming next? Will we have more of these conversations? Will we have something changed?
1: Well, we certainly hope so. And, um, and that's, you know, that's part of why we wrote this book is really to, you know, as we described, pull back the curtain on some of the more hidden and subtle pressures and tensions that young people feel and really give adults a push in the direction of different kinds of conversations about digital life. And that to us um, feels like a really important way forward. You know, we've spent the last couple of years really mired in teens pain points, noticing the details of their challenges, the things that they really struggle with. But you know, we, we came away from this research actually really hopeful because young people are really motivated to lead healthy lives with technology, but adults really need to step up and we need to step up in different ways from the ways we've stepped up in the past. We need to get more curious and open up conversations about uncomfortable topics like sexting and pornography. We need to, you know, sort of take on and accept the reality that stuff is going to be circulating out there and really reckon with that and prepare for missteps and think about those things. We also need to think bigger level and think about the infrastructure around people around young people. Think about you know what we provide on the education side in terms of digital citizenship curriculum, curricula and other school supports for well-being. Um, But also the what the tech industry is doing and the ways that, you know, it may need to be monitored um, and regulated in order to address some of the features and uh, design features and uh, ways in which apps can get away from their intended, uh, their, their original intentions in terms of the ways they support young people.
2: And do you think these conversations are going to be a bit more pertinent even now as we're going towards this meta world, uh, more virtual reality? These conversations are essential
0: for sure. They're they're important so that we can support directly the teams in our lives. They're important as a society so we can figure out the path to effective regulation and, um, and the path to living in a world with these technologies in a way that is aligned with our values and our needs as, as humans. So we see these conversations as It's just essential.
2: So why is it important to get everybody on board to talk about these things? Because your study kind of really shines the light on these issues that teens sometimes and often are not listened to. Um, It's it's really important in part because of what we were just naming around the sort of looming
0: questions that we have ahead of us as a society around regulation um, and education and supports. Um, it's also really important to start and continue having these conversations directly with youth because even though we've've we've done our best today to give you a um, a snapshot of some of the issues that teens are navigating we know for sure that our work is not done because the technologies will continue to change and so will the ways teens use them and um, we will continue to look for the through lines the the things that are familiar and the things that are driven by development and by our needs as humans that are are you know taking taking shape in new ways through technologies, but fundamentally you know familiar. Um, but we also recognize that with each new wave of technologies, there are things that are new and different that we need to understand. Um, and and so we will we will keep having these conversations, and we really hope that everyone else will too.
2: So does the generational gap plays
0: any role in that? Um,
2: Kalina, will you say a little bit more about what you're getting at with that question? So, is it, is it because the parents, for example, and teens are from different generations and grew up with different things that sometimes we think that adults are not able to sort of understand and uh, really wrap their head around on how teens find themselves online or are they capable of this?
0: Oh, they're absolutely, absolutely capable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Carrie, go it's, ahead. Yeah, certain,
1: certain. Yeah, thank you for clarifying your question. Certainly, um, certainly, that you know, the generational uh, divides definitely play a role. Like you know, ev- as noted, everything can seem really foreign and difficult and hard to understand but I think um, as I think we need to pay attention to what you know to what's new and understand you know the complicated dynamics around that but also what's not and so really I, uh, we found a very powerful exercise when we're talking with parents and teachers um, and we start we st- often start off our talks by inviting people to get in touch with their inner teen kind of going back to their adolescence and remembering, Um, what it felt like at that age. And we do it through um, actually inviting people to think about a musical memory um, from their teen years. So a song that was particularly special that they and their friends um, used to listen to all the time. Um, There's actually research that shows um, that tapping into and remembering and listening to songs from the teen years actually can be very powerful in bringing one's back one oneself back into those feelings, and so there are ways in which, as adults, we can remember what it feels like to be an adolescent, to very much care about. Um, about feeling validated, about feeling connected to others, um, and understand that that's an undercurrent in many of the things that they're feeling, and then use that tool of curiosity to really understand the specifics of how it's playing out um, when they look at their phone and and they. See see uh, um, a steady stream of likes on a friend's post, but not so many on theirs. Or they see that every, um, every comment um, in a thread on their friend's post was liked or loved, um, and theirs wasn't, and they really wonder why. Um, and that's, that's a really hard feeling that young people um, grapple with, but it's something that we can, um, we can relate to if we try.
0: We also shouldn't overlook that actually there's a lot about our current experiences that probably um, is and feels very, very aligned and relatable. So, you know, the experience of feeling like you have to be always available, maybe for an adult, maybe for you who have listeners out there, maybe that doesn't feel to you like you need to monitor Snapchat all the time, but maybe you can relate to the feeling of having a boss, a colleague, a friend who expects um, very quick replies. To emails or to text messages. And you can you can actually relate to how burdensome it feels when you are are feeling like you can't put your phone down because you have to be available. Um that's just one example. But so often I think we actually can find ways that our own technology experiences um, have a lot of the same feelings and then. If we can do that we we can also just remind ourselves that actually those hard feelings are amplified for adolescents and i think that that it allows us to really tap a sense of empathy um and maybe i'll just say as a as a kind of final note on this that um we have to we do really have to turn our eye onto our own habits too um carrie and i are often asked like what what can adults do to help and Of course, we think certain kinds of conversations are really important and there are certain pivots that are essential, but, um, and we've talked about many of those, but, um, a big one is, is thinking about what we're modeling in our own relationships with our devices and the ways that we use technology. Um, we, we talk about this principle of modeling over magic, but essentially just the idea that there is no magic wand that will undo the impact of the behaviors that our kids see us modeling day in and day out with our own devices. Um, we've come to see that as a really important, even essential part of the ways we think about supporting them in this landscape.
2: Oh, that's so reassuring to hear. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book behind the screens surprised you the most?
1: One of the things that we learned that was really, I mean, so many things surprised us. And I, I think we've shared shared a bunch of those nuggets with you across this conversation, but kind of a big picture thing that we learned from working with our youth advisory board is um, the ways in which teens felt so validated by realizing they weren't alone in their struggles. Um, And so we set up this Youth Advisory Council um, with the purpose of helping us co-interpret this big data set of perspectives of teens uh, from across the country. And so we brought this group of 22 young people together in different focus groups talking about different topics. And that was incredibly powerful. When, um, When we came to the to the end of our sessions with our youth advisory council, we asked them, you know, to really reflect on some of their experiences being in these conversations across a number of weeks. And we heard again and again about the power of being together and hearing that the things that they worried about as individuals were actually shared. They didn't always play out in the same ways because of um, young people's identities and life circumstances, but there was enough resonance resonance. resonance and connection across their struggles their pain points and their desire for strategies to lead healthier lives with technology, that it, we, we knew that that was a really um, powerful experience. And there's something in that that adults really need to be alert to. Like in some ways, like the most help that we can give teens is to have them connect with one another and step out of the way. Um, and so how can we curate spaces for young people to come together and have meaningful conversations? about shared pain points when it comes to the variety of issues that occupy their attention and their stress in their lives related to social media, but also beyond.
2: And were you or are you also addicted to social media? What's your platform of choice? Oh, um,
0: my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly there are ways in which we cringe at some of our own habits, tech habits, but we do think a lot about them. And I think doing this research has um, has made us much more aware of of why and how it is so hard for us to actually use technology in ways that are aligned with our values, how persuasive the designs are and, um, how they play on some of our natural instincts and sensitivities. And so, um, we have, I think we have various online hangouts that we, places that we love and ways that we love to spend our time, um, but also part of, part of, I think doing this work for us has been recognizing that we don't want technology to be undercutting the quality of the relationships we have with our kids. And it's not enough to just say that we need to be really intentional about doing things. Like in my case, um, it means leaving my phone downstairs when I'm doing bedtime, because I know that otherwise I'll just have that temptation to open my email and just do a quick refresh. And um, suddenly I'm pulled out of the moment and Gosh, like our kids really do notice that. So um we we've become much more aware and much more mindful about our tech use as part of doing this work.
1: Yeah. The- the pandemic, actually, and the, you know, the work from home scenarios that so much so many of us were in um, really crystallized that challenge that we have um, as as adults. And, you know, when when, you know, my desk set up at the end of the dining room table is such that, you know, that I'm I'm my my office is part of our our family life. And um, I feel the pull um, both toward my email, but also toward my child who's looking at me asking me to end my work day and um, you know and I'm glad that they do and so so really closing the computer and like Emily said leaving the phone behind um, for that for those in-person moments feels all the more essential
2: well this has been a truly fascinating and really insightful discussion so what's next for you and where can our listeners find your book
1: so one of the big things that we're doing right now is we're actually continuing our close partnership with teens. Um, over the past year, we've um, we've brought our teen advisors, a subset of them together uh, to work on co-designing a set of resources and tools to support um, their digital well-being. So a essentially a toolkit for digital well-being that's by teens and for teens. So we're really leaning in to that idea that we need to partner with young people and in order to understand their experiences and develop really relevant interventions that can help them. And so that's a big part of what um, we've been doing lately. Emily, do you wanna share more plus share where they can find out more about our work.
0: Yes. Well, you can for sure check out our book website, which is behind their screens.com um, where we have more information about our book and also some of our other projects um, and some of the resources that Carrie's mentioning. Um, we will continue to do this work. We're working on a measure of mindful digital engagement, um, more resources for classroom practice and um tools and resources to help teens have some of the kinds of conversations Carrie was mentioning earlier that they're really itching to have with each other and with adults. So um, thank you so much, Galena, for having us. And thank you to our listeners for the gift of your attention. We know that in this attention economy, this is an especially, is an especially powerful gift. So we really appreciate it.
2: Emily, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.